So as a church, we're walking through Mark, and it's, it's, been a, it's been a great study. We're walking through it verse by verse, seeing the life and the ministry of Jesus. It is vital for us as a church and as individuals to keep our eyes and our focus on Jesus and to hear from him. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and it says this, We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. And I can wrap that, we can kind of wrap that up with one statement. I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's worth writing down. We will become like what we behold. We will become like what we behold, who our eyes are on. You know, I, I, I pay attention to some young people, and their eyes are on people like, like the Kardashians. I will never get that, right? But the, the people, you have your eyes on people. Who you behold is who you will become like. And so for us, you know, like my wife and I, some of you guys are parents. You've probably noticed that your kids behold you a little bit, right? They have their eyes on you, which could be something really awesome, or it can be really scary, Sometimes within two minutes, it's both awesome and scary because they will become more and more like you. If you are working and you work closely with a leader and you want to become like that leader, you keep your eyes on him and you become more and more like that that leader, he or she. And for us, as followers of Jesus, as we gaze and keep our eyes on the glory of the Lord, when we keep our eyes on Jesus, we will be transformed, and the Bible tells us, to become more and more like Christ. That's what we do. We don't get saved because we got it all together. We get saved because we need Jesus, right? And then so we become more and more like him. That's our goal as we grow in our walk with him. And so as we focus on our text today and really throughout this series, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. What is he telling us? What are we to learn as we study through this? Just a little bit of recap from last week. Last week we were in Mark chapter 8, the second half of that. And we really hit a point in Mark where... It's been referred to as kind of the continental divide of Mark. For the first part of Mark, it was a lot about who is Jesus, right? And you see the miracles that he does, who is Jesus, and you, you see him kind of, kind of proving that. And then the second part really talks about why he came. And so all in that verse of Mark, all in that passage of Mark 20, or 8, 27 through the end, we were focusing on three different things. The, the, the Bible answered three questions for us in our text last week. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come? And what does Jesus expect of you and I as Christians, as followers of Christ? And so Jesus asked the disciples, he says, who do others say that I am? That's important. But the more important question is what he says right after that. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? And as we talked about last week, that is probably the most important question you will ever answer in your entire life. And here's why. Because the answer that you have to that question will determine your eternity. It's not a question of whether it might. It will determine your eternity based on how you answer that question. And so Peter said, Jesus, you're the Christ, right? You're the Messiah. You're the, the, the anointed one. You're the, you're, the, you're the promised one. You are the Savior, And Jesus affirmed that. And he really says to them, and as Christ, as the Savior, as the Messiah, here is why I came. And he tells us in verse, chapter 8, verse 31, he says that I came and that the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus was telling them, this is why I came. You got it right, I'm the Christ, 
right? But this is why I came, to be the Savior of the world. And then he moves on and he predicts his suffering, his death, his, re- his resurrection. He's telling them, as the Savior, as the Messiah, these are the things that must happen to me. He's telling them, and it's hard for them to hear, but he's telling them that I must die on the cross. That's really what he's telling them. I must die on the cross and I will rise again as Savior. And then he began to tell his disciples and those that were following him. Here's how you follow me. I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior. I came to die for you and rise again. And as followers of me, as you follow me, he he begins to tell them. He says this, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. We got a chuckle out of that last week because, you know, I kind of looked at that verse and said, you know, Jesus, are you sure? Because this is America, right? We don't deny ourselves of anything, right? That's kind of how we live sometimes, right? But Jesus says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Here's what he's telling them. Set aside you. Set aside your pursuits and your worldly pursuits and make me first in your life. One of the illustrations we gave, we see bumper stickers that will say, if anybody has this, please don't be insulted by this. But there are bumper stickers out there that will say, Jesus is my co-pilot. Here's my recommendation. Throw that bumper sticker away. Jesus is not your co-pilot, right? Jesus is the pilot and the, and the controller. He, like He's in charge. Amen, church? All right. So Jesus is in charge. He says, make me first. You've tried it on your own long enough. You needed me. I saved you. Now put me first. And he's telling them that the life that I have for you, the eternal life that is available for you, through salvation in Jesus Christ, is worth any sacrifice, any suffering, and even death. So he says, after that, so follow me, be with me. Be with me, follow me, learn from me. And all that leads to right where we are in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 1 through 13. And guys, just so we can honor God by the reading of his word and then praying, would you guys stand with me as we read this passage together? Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And as we read this, let's just trust God that he's going to teach us this morning. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, meaning teacher, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he he gave them orders not to relate or not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man, Jesus, rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement... And discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant, they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that, that, that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does, come, does first come and restore all things. <clears throat> 
And yet, how is it written, the Son of Man, being Jesus, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Let's pray, church. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you, God, that you demonstrated your love toward us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still dead in our sins, you died for us. And so, God, we celebrate that this morning. We come here to make much of Jesus. We come here to celebrate what you are doing, but we also come here to be encouraged and challenged this morning to grow to be more like you, Father. God, we pray, Lord, today as we walk through this text that we would see the important truth of who Jesus is. And God, help us be changed today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we talked a little bit about this. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And we see Jesus, or we see Peter give the right answer. He says, you are the Christ. In Matthew the first book in the, in the New Testament, the first book of the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 16, he gives us a little bit more detail. Peter says, you are the Christ, but he also says, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, and you are God, the Son, right? This tells of who Jesus is in the Trinity, the Godhead, three in one. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all one God, three different persons. And so Peter, making that huge statement, he makes that big statement, and then Jesus begins to tell his disciples that as the Christ, as the Son of the living God, I must suffer and I must die and rise again. Can you understand how confusing that would have been for them at that point, right? Here's this guy, I just, I just said, hey, you're the Christ, right? And now you're telling me that you're going to die. He says, I must suffer and die And then Peter does something. He pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus, saying, Jesus, this suffering, this this dying, right? This shall never happen to you. Peter is telling Jesus, that doesn't really fit into our model of what a Messiah is, Jesus, right? That's not going to happen to you. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs aren't defeated. But Peter and the disciples were really still not fully getting it. They know he's the Christ, they know he's the promised one, they know he's the Savior, but they aren't fully understanding how all that's going to happen. They weren't understanding just who Jesus is. And although he just told them verbally, that's all happened verbally, what we're about to see is Jesus is about to show them physically who he is. And Jesus in verse 1 says this, Truly I say to you, There are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's some discussion on, some debate with theologians on what exactly this means. But Jesus, if we look at it as we're supposed to study the Bible in its context, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. We know Jesus rose again. Amen, church? And Jesus is coming again to claim his church. But this is not talking about that. This is not talking about Jesus' second coming. But he's talking about the events that are about to take place. He tells them, some of you that are here are not going to die until you see with your own eyes the kingdom of God coming in power. Right? He's telling them that some of them will see Jesus coming with power. And he's referencing this change that we're about to see. He's referencing what is about to happen. And so six days later, we get to what is about to happen. Verse 2. 
Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. If you notice when you're reading the New Testament, lots of things happen on the mountains, don't they? Lots of things. Jesus goes away to be with the Father in the mountains, right? There's, a, there's teaching on the mountain. There's sermon on the mountain. Lots of things happen on the mountain. Have you guys ever had a mountaintop experience? Anybody in here had a mountaintop experience, right? Just one of you. Okay, maybe two. Mike, I think I got a head nod, right? Mountain, two people have had a, had a good life. That's good. All right, so, so, you know, if you've had this mountaintop experience and it's an event that happened that really just blew your mind, right? An event that kind of changed your life. And so these three men, they've already had some of these mountain, mountaintop moments because they've been with Jesus, but Peter and James and John are about to have a really big mountaintop experience. They're about to have that moment. And it's interesting what Jesus does here as he works and teaches. Keep in mind this. As Jesus would travel and teach, he had the biggest gathering people had ever seen. Sometimes up to 20,000 people just following him. They wanted to see what he was going to do next. They wanted to hear what he was going to say next. So you have thousands of people that follow Jesus And then you've got a large amount of people that are really turning to Jesus and they're really believing in Jesus and they're really following Jesus. And then you have his 12 disciples. You have his 12 disciples. And then out of those 12 disciples, Jesus pulls out of them three men. And as we continue to walk through Mark, you'll see that Peter, James, and John really become that that inner circle with Jesus. Those three that he pours into a little bit. Are you with me, church? Just those three that he decided, these are those that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them along with me to do certain things uh, when there was no one else there. And they're about to have this mountaintop experience. So try to put yourself in this position, in their position during this. And so in verse 2, it says this, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured, it's a, it's, a, it's a Greek word that comes from the word metamorpho, right? You guys can pretty much figure out that for the English word, that's where we get our word metamorphosis, right? So there's this change. Jesus is going to, he's experienced a metamorphosis, a physical transformation right before their eyes. And we start to see what happens a little bit. Keep in mind, up to this point, they have seen Jesus as a man, They've seen Jesus do miracles. They know there's something special about him. They're affirming that he's the Christ, but they haven't seen anything like this yet. Verse 3, and his garments became radiant as exceedingly white. I just love this language that Mark puts in here. As no launderer on earth can whiten them. I mean, just think about that. My wife, we have kids, we have boys, so my wife goes through a lot of bleach, okay, with our boys. They wear white shirts. Any moms, amen on that one? Or dads, you know, whoever does that, right? And so, I mean, more than any launderer can, can make something white, this is happening to Jesus. His, his garments become radiant, exceedingly white. Luke and Matthew both record this account as well. In Luke chapter 9, verse 29, Luke describes it this way. And while he was praying... The appearance of his, of Jesus' face, became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. Matthew 17, 2 says this, And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Jesus 
chooses to show them at this point, he he chose to, to show them and make something more clear to them. You ever have those moments where you're like, Jesus, I don't know what you're doing in my life right now. I'd like for you to make it clear. Jesus is about to make this very clear for them. Standing before these men, they have seen him as Jesus in the flesh that can do some great things, right? Some, some magnificent, magnificent things. But before these men is Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son in all of his glory and all of his wonder. He is letting them see briefly who he really is. He was revealing to them that he wasn't just a a man from Nazareth, but he was, in fact, God of this universe. He had already told that to them. He's already kind of laid that out there for them. This is who I am. Peter had just kind of confessed, you're the Christ, you're the chosen one. But now he's physically showing them. His garments became as radiant and exceedingly white as light, his face shining, shining bright like the sun. Church, they had this idea of who they wanted Jesus to be. They, had, they were under oppression under the Romans. We don't experience that. Go over to a mission field a little bit. Go over to a different country and see the oppression that some of these countries have on their people. Are you with me, church? They had been under the oppression of the Roman government, and they were looking for a Messiah that would rescue them politically and militarily. And so they had this picture This idea of who they wanted Jesus to be. And so they're having a hard time wrapping their their minds completely around who he truly was. They were struggling and Jesus knew what they needed and he made it perfectly clear. That he was not just a man of flesh, but he was also God in the flesh. Let me lay some things out here for you because there are some confusing and contradicting theologies going around, especially Tucson, but all around the world, about who Jesus is. So we're going to look at who Jesus is and why this is very significant. John 1.14 tells us this. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. Amen? Are you with me? Jesus is the living Word. Earlier in John, the Bible makes it perfectly clear. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word, help me out with that. And the Word was God. So let's change that to Jesus because we know who the Word is. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Jesus was showing them that He is fully God in the flesh. Colossians 2.19 or 2.9 really, really says it well. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. He knew what they needed to see and he put it on full display. Jesus was never a created being. Jesus was not in the spirit world and then became and elevated to a certain point of Godhood. Are you with me, church? Jesus has always been God. He has always been who he's always been. Are you with me? That's, un- that's important for us to understand because it needs to be God that came to die for us. Otherwise, we have no salvation. Are you with me, church? Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He wasn't 50% of each. He was 100% of both. And for a brief moment, he transformed, he transfigured right in front of them to show them who he 
was. And he's showing them, you see me in the flesh, right? Now here, let me show you that I'm also, as we read in in Matthew, God with you. Emmanuel. Fully God, fully man. He's giving them a picture of what we read of God in Psalm 104. And it reads, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor. And majesty, fully God and fully man. He's not a created God. He doesn't have a beginning. He has always been and will always be God. And what a sight that must have been the glory of the Lord on full display for them to see. Right? It's vital that we understand this church. Jesus is God the Son. And then we come to verse 4 and see this. They're up on the mountain. They see Jesus transfigure. And then in verse 4, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Those two men were talking with Jesus. Jesus was there and his glory as God is being displayed in brilliant light. And Elijah and Moses appear with him. And they're conversing together. Mark doesn't give us all the detail of what's being said, but Luke tells us in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, that they were speaking of his departure, of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The three of them were talking about what Jesus came to do and what he was about to accomplish on the cross and his rising from the dead. They were talking about his victory as the Messiah and as the Savior. And so you might sit back and wonder, what's the deal with Moses and Elijah? Why, why are they there? They're gone, right? Aren't they? Haven't they already? Their time has passed, right? So what's going on with Moses and Elijah? Why did Jesus have these two men from old come to be with him in that moment of his transfiguration? So let's look at them. Moses, when we first look at, at, at Moses, a great Man of God, the man who God used to write the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Right? He gave him the Torah. He, God gave him the law. It was Moses that God gave the Ten Commandments to. It was Moses that God used to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt, out of slavery. And to the Jews, it could easily be said that in their mind, Moses was the greatest man to have ever lived. He was a big deal to them right we're having this conversation i watched espn the other day and they had this little thing like it's time to have the conversation and say that lebron is the goat i'm so, greatest of all time in case you didn't get that right in basketball it's mj church i'm just telling you right from the pulp no, i'm just kidding just kidding but no so there's that debate who's the greatest right and the jews would say man that is moses it's moses is the greatest and now we have and so moses is there representing the law and representing him rescuing them from rescuing God's people from Egypt. And Elijah is there. Elijah is representing the prophets, those that God used to, to speak his word to his people before Jesus came. So he's representing the prophets. He was, he was one of the great prophets used by God. Elijah is, is, is a prophet known for his boldness and his courage for God. And God used him greatly, check this out, to deliver God's people. Not like Moses did out of that particular bondage, but out of the bondage of idolatry, right? He came to deliver God's people from false religions and false gods. And so these two men 
who were significant figures in history and and, and in God's people. They were here talking with Jesus about what Jesus was about to accomplish, about his death and his burial and his resurrection. These two men, just, just follow along with me here. We say at our church that one of our core values is that everything points to the gospel. Everything points to Jesus. Are you with me? Genesis chapter 3, we got the first mention of the gospel. Going all the way to, to Revelations, it points back to the, are you with me church? Like it's about the gospel and these two men in their life had pointed to the gospel well before Jesus ever came. They were pointing years ago, pointing people to a coming Savior. And here these two men of old that had pointed people to a coming Savior are now standing with that Savior. They are standing with God in the flesh, the Christ and the Savior. They are standing with the one that came to give the ultimate delivery of God's people from their sins. Jesus being here with these two men was quite significant. Are you with me? That's a big deal. And now we see Peter. Peter's kind of the the mouthpiece for the disciples, right? Anybody ever just kind of talk because you're nervous and you don't really know what else to say, so you just talk? Some of you all better shake your head because I've been there with you. I'll shake my head with you too, right? So Peter kind of has that little bit of a moment in verse 5. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, it is good for us to be here. And he says, let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. We'll talk about his confusion here in just a minute. Most people would believe that Peter is wanting to give reverence here to these three men. We don't have all the details, but that's the, that's the, that's the winning argument. But doing so to build these three tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah would have put Moses and Elijah on the same level and in the same rank as Jesus. And that would be a mistake. But we can see that whatever Peter intended here was, was ill-advised. He's really at a loss of words as to what to say or to do in this moment. You see that in verse 6. For he, Peter, did not know what to answer. Sometimes it's good just to be quiet. Amen, church, right? But he didn't know what to answer. For they became terrified. This was like nothing they had ever seen. Peter was still seeing all of this from a human perspective, and they are fearful. Verse 7, God shows up a little bit more. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Jesus, or Peter is starting to speak, right? They're, they're fearful, and then this cloud overshadows them. This is known really as like the glory cloud or the Shekinah glory cloud. Are you with me, church? It appears as if Jesus, as, as if God is saying Jesus doesn't need man-made tents or tabernacles, right? This is the presence of God that you are standing in the midst of. It's a big deal. And then God the Father speaks about God the Son. He says, this is my beloved Son, Listen to him. This is my beloved son. The words of God the Father on his son, they affirm Jesus' deity. He's God. His words, the Father's words, affirm Jesus' identity and they affirm his mission as the son of God. God the Father is giving this affirmation. And then he says this, listen to him. Moses and the prophets 
Yeah, listen to them because they were used by God, but they even pointed people to Jesus. Amen, church? Man, they pointed to the coming Messiah. So listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus as he tells you that he came to be the Savior. Listen to Jesus as he tells you that he came to suffer and be rejected and be put to death and will rise again. God is saying, block out everything else and listen to Jesus. And later when Jesus dies and rise again, what does Jesus tell his disciples? Go and be my witnesses. Right? Share Jesus. Make disciples of Jesus. Share this gospel with them. And to do that, you have to listen to Jesus. Church, we need to know the voice of Jesus. We need to listen to the voice of Jesus and obey him. Notice at the end of verse 8, it says that all at once they looked around and saw no one with anyone or with them anymore except Jesus alone. Moses pointed people to this coming Savior that was greater than him. Elijah and the prophets pointed people to a coming Savior that was greater than them. They were pointing them to Jesus. And now Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, He's here and He's it. Right? He's the one to know. He's the one to see and keep your eyes on. He's the one to listen to and He is not just a man. He's God. He's Lord. There are so many voices to listen to. How many times do you get your little ding going off on your phone of a voice that you want to listen to? How many times do you turn on the, the, the news or something and you listen to someone else's voice? There are so, there's so much noise pulling for your attention But these words to these men are the same words for us when God the Father says, listen to Jesus. Colossians says that Jesus is to be first. We hear from him in prayer and we hear from him right in the word of God. I know I say this a lot, but how often do we run to Facebook or to our best friends before we run to Jesus? Facebook and your best friends didn't die for you. Jesus did. Facebook and your best friends are not God. Jesus is. Be in the word, church. Listen to what God is saying. The world has a lot to say. Amen, church? The world has a lot to say, right? And too often we listen to the world over Jesus. We listen to the wrong voices. Think about this in your life. Just take this minute. Who is competing for your ears? Who's competing for your hearts? Who or what is getting your attention over God? That's a great question to ask every morning or every night. God, who did I listen to over you? I like going back to Exodus chapter 18. This is free. It's not in my notes, right? Moses is leading, right? And Jethro, his his father-in-law, comes in and he gives him this thing. He says, hey, what you're doing is not good. And he lays out a plan of leadership for him. And I I love what Jethro says. And he says, if this pleases the Lord, then do this plan. Right? Even godly men can get it wrong sometimes. Amen? Right? Men and women can get it wrong sometimes. So we listen to Jesus. We have many things that want our attention, but Jesus deserves it all. Verse 9. They were coming down. They've had this moment. The, the Elijah and Moses, they disappear. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen 
until the Son of Man, until Jesus rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. These three in their mountaintop experience with Jesus, they have learned that while Jesus is fully man, Jesus is fully God. They had just seen the glory of God shining right before them. They're still going to have moments, church, where they wrestle with just who Jesus is. How often do we wrestle with how big God is? I was talking with someone just yesterday that just struggled in some areas, and we just talked about how good God is and how faithful He is and how, how big He is. They wrestle with the fact that, that uh, right here that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. They're like, wait a minute, what, is, what does that mean? I, I, I don't get it. Jesus already told them that. He's going to tell them a few more times that He rises from the dead, even when He dies. Even when Jesus dies, they still don't get it. They're missing it, right? And so Jesus says to them, "This what happened here, keep to yourself until after I rise from the dead. Because Jesus knows at that point they're going to get it. And so they're talking about what all this means. What does it mean, rising from the dead? And so they're having that conversation, and they continue to walk down the mountain. We come to verse 11. They were asking him, saying, what is it that the scribes, these are, these are leaders, religious teachers. What is it that the scribes, these teachers, say that Elijah must come first? Before all this happens, and he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Verse 13, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Jesus answers their questions. He tells them, guys, Elijah came. And here's what he's telling them. We see this in in supporting text. They get it. That Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. He came in the person of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a representative of Elijah. And what did John the Baptist do? He prepared the way for Jesus. John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah, for the advancement of the gospel. Church, what happens here in this text is huge. The Old Testament points toward Jesus the Messiah, the Savior that will save people from their sins. Isaiah chapter 53 predicts it. He tells them what's going to happen in Isaiah chapter 53, and it foretells that the the coming Messiah will suffer and die, and then they talk about that one that will come before him, right? And John the Baptist comes, and he prepares the way for Jesus. And as we read in John 1.14, Jesus is now here. He's God in the flesh, God with us. And when we step back and really take all of this in, sometimes we have texts that it's kind of like, here's point one, here's point two, here's point three, right? And it makes it really easy for preachers. We like those, right? But Jesus is teaching us a huge thing here. It's something for us to see that's important. Jesus is showing himself to be more than a man. He is showing himself to be fully God. And that's vital that we understand that this morning, church. Because of our sins, because of our falling short you know, before God. Our relationship with our Creator, your relationship with God is broken. And then we hear, we see Jesus revealing that he is fully God. Here's why that's important. Jesus is showing them that he came to restore our deepest longing. Here's what I mean by that. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we were created in the image of God. We were created, church, to walk with our creator, God. 
We were created to be in a relationship with God. To be embraced by our Creator. And what do we see? We see people seeking that relationship their entire lives. They try to find this relationship in in a man or a woman or in their job or in something. Are you with me, church? Man, we're always seeking. And often people reject and refuse that relationship with Jesus. They're seeking relationships that will never fully satisfy But we were created, it is who we are, we were created to be in a relationship with God whether we want to admit it or not. That's how we were created. We were created to be in that relationship to walk with God. And Jesus, right here, he's showing them, he said, I'm coming for you. I'm here. I'm here to restore that relationship. I'm not just some guy, I'm God. I have come to be rejected. I have come to suffer and die. I have come to give my life for you. To bring forgiveness, to pay the price for your sins. I have come to restore that relationship. I'm here. It's going to happen. It must happen. For us, we look at it and we celebrate. It happened. Amen, church? He came and he died and he rose again and we celebrate that. For them, they haven't seen that yet. They're walking with Jesus. Jesus hasn't suffered and died yet. They're not understanding it. We're in a position where we see it. It's happened. And Jesus really is telling us, will you believe? Will you believe? He lays it all out there. Will you believe in me and the gospel and receive this, this restored relationship and this gift of salvation? Will you give your life to Jesus? Will you walk with Jesus and have that real relationship with Him? Jesus doesn't just want your Sunday mornings at 10.30, church. Jesus demands your every second because of what He did for you. If you're here today, I'm going to talk to two groups of people today. If you're here today and you would say, I know Jesus, I'm saved. There's been a time in my life Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Right? Confess with your mouth, right, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I've done that. I'm a child of God. For us, when we read this, we can be reminded that we can trust in the God that saved us. We can trust in the promises and the plans of God. He's not just some man that made some promises, He's Creator God. Things don't always go as planned. Things get tough, but God is always faithful and true, and he is with you. The Bible promises that us that in Matthew 28, that he is with us until the end of the age. His ways are good, his plans are true and right, and so he is worthy for us to give him our ears first, to listen to Jesus and follow him. He calls us to be with him. Right, Be with Him. We are to keep our eyes on Him and behold Him. Rest in the reality that you were adopted by Him. The Bible says we're no longer our own. We, are, we belong to Him. We were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let Jesus, let God embrace you wherever you are today. Feel that love. Remember His sacrifice and continue to live in awe of who Jesus is and continue to live in obedience to Jesus. If you're saved today and you say, man, I'm not listening to Jesus first and foremost, man, just take that to God and say, today, I'm going to start doing that. And for those that are not saved, if you're here today and you said, I, I've rejected Christ, I've not given Him my life, I've, I've rejected that He's the Savior, I, I've got time, I've got time, right? 
I got longevity in my family. I've got time. We don't know what our days hold. If you've not made Jesus Lord of your life, please understand this. Jesus is in fact God. The God that came for you and died for you and rose again for you because he so loved you. He paid the price that you deserve to pay for your sins. He paid your penalty and he came to be your Savior and your Lord. You need to understand today, if you don't know Jesus, he wasn't just some man. He is fully God. He came to restore relationship with you. And there is that longing in each of you for that relationship with Jesus. And people go their whole lives trying to fill that void. And Jesus is there the whole time saying, I'm what you need. Why are you making your life so difficult? I'm what you need. You keep trying to fill it with other things. I'm what you need. I came for you. Will you believe in me? Will you turn from your sins? Will you give me your life? Will you let me forgive you and adopt you into my family? Will you let me save you? Today, that question is there for you. If you don't know Christ, will you let Jesus save you today? When I read this passage, there are a lot of songs that go through my mind. I love to just worship God and just sing of his majesty. Right? Whether it's an old song like, majesty, worship his majesty. You guys know that song? It's just a good song. Or, the great I am. Right? These three men got to see the glory of the Lord, but one day, church, we will be in the presence of Jesus for eternity. We will be in the presence of Jesus for eternity. And what they saw for a brief moment, we will live for eternity if you know Christ. If you know Him, if you trust in Him, and if you are saved. And I think of this song, what a day that will be. You guys know that song? When my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, and he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. Church, Jesus is God. Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you, and he wants to walk with you.